When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. An attempt of the enemy to break through well-prepared by a united artillery action and carried on with a reckless exposure of the infantry was broken down with severe losses to the enemy. From a German group order referencing defensive actions against the U.S. 114th Infantry Regiment, 29th Division, AEF, dated October 12th, 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast episode 82, A Reckless Exposure of the Infantry. We have to start with a correction this time. At the end of the last episode, I said that 2nd Lieutenant Joe Lawrence, his 113th Regiment, and the 29th Division were all relieved from the front line on the 18th of October, 1918. Yeah, so I got two out of three correct there. Lieutenant Lawrence and the 113th were indeed relieved on the 18th, but the rest of the 29th Division stayed in the line until it was fully relieved between the 28th and the 30th of October by the returning 79th Division. Oops, my apologies for that mistake. Moving on, Patreon pitch time. All right, folks, as patrons on Patreon, you will be helping to financially support the podcast. As thanks, you will have early access to all new episodes, as well as transcripts and bibliographies for those episodes. Patrons also have other perks, such as extra episodes that have not yet been released. Patrons currently have access to an episode on the battle for Feme and Femet in the summer of 1918, as well as four episodes on the Battle of Tannenberg. If this sounds interesting to you, check us out on patreon.com backslash battles of the First World War podcast. Patronage of the BFWWP can begin with as little as a dollar per episode, and it is all greatly appreciated. Patrons are only charged when a new episode is released. All right. Let's get back into the line. 
As darkness approached on the evening of October 10th, 1918, Captain William J. Redden served as the guide for his parent 114th Infantry Regiment, 29th Division, as they crossed a pontoon bridge across the River Meuse from the area of the hamlet of Regneville to the shell holes and shattered bricks that used to be Samagneux village on the eastern bank. This wasn't Captain Redden's full-time job. It was just that two days prior, he had reconnoitered a crossing site and was the only one who had the necessary information to help guide his entire regiment across. Redden's day job was commander of Company B, 1st Battalion, 114th Infantry Regiment. Last episode, we continued the fighting for the Meuse Heights and focused on the experiences of 2nd Lieutenant Joe Lawrence and the 113th Infantry Regiment, Captain Redden, and the experiences he shared with Company B, 114th Infantry, were supposed to be a part of that episode. But after going through Lawrence's story, I decided Redden's story needed its own separate telling. William Redden, a naturalized American of Irish birth, was a longtime soldier in New Jersey's National Guard. A dedicated soldier, after the Great War, he would write a sometimes scathing memoir titled Other Men's Lives, Experiences of a Doughboy, 1917 through 1919. The reasons for the harshness and tone of Redden's memoir will be understood by the end of the episode. But from his writing, the reader can see that Redden himself was already a rather cynical observer of his peers and of the New Jersey military political machine. He strikes me as someone who had been around the block long enough to know how things really worked. The word cynical is used above as its meaning fits Redden's jaundiced view of things around him, but he strikes me as just a realist, a person who saw things the way they were. It would have been great to talk to him at a military function. I mean, there would be no lack of subjects for conversation, I suspect. He seemed like a really great guy. Up to World War I, many American National Guard regiments were regional or local affairs. Redden's unit was the 5th New Jersey Infantry Regiment. I do not have any more insight into the New Jersey National Guard scene during the World War I era. For this episode, we have only William Redden's view. But he described it as a place where, quote, For years, the Guard in New Jersey had been a convenient means to some officers to either public employment or elective office, as these gentlemen were not a bit slow to use their military rank as a stepping stone when seeking elective office. A bit of a war record would be a wonderful help. Our entry into the war found this group in a strong political position, smart enough to take advantage of it and plan for possibilities after the war was over. It was a peculiar thing, but the organizations not affiliated with the group referred to were the troops ordered for the Mexican Border Service. And after the duty were the same troops to receive the first order for duty in the war. End quote. Activation by the federal government of the New Jersey National Guard meant there would be a reshuffling of the ranks and officers with new units created for the war. To get a little more of the flavor of William Redden, we have to hear what he had to say about this reorganization. Quote, 
The last conference of officers, 5th Infantry, was held October 10, 1917, and the makeup of the new regiment was explained to us. The program was very simple, merely uniting two companies of the old regiment into one company of 250 men and six officers in the new regiment, which had been designated as the 114th U.S. Infantry. Considering all the deep secrecy that had contemplated this reorganization, I had expected some profound military strategy was in the making that would cause the Central Powers to surrender if they should discover the New Jersey National Guard was in the war. Company K of Montclair, New Jersey, and Company H of Orange, podcaster note, H Company was Redden's original command, were to be consolidated as Company B under the command of Captain Roscoe R. Johnson, formerly of K Company. Under the same date, October 11th, General Order No. 8, Headquarters, 57th Brigade Infantry, was issued specifying the officers named therein were transferred as a surplus to the 54th Depot Brigade, and for them to report to the commanding general of that organization at 10 o'clock the next morning. The writer was among the undesirables. End quote. So the cool kids, the connected officers, had bumped guys like Redden out. And while he seethed about it, like a soldier and a man, he kept his mouth shut and waited. By January of 1918, he had been recalled from the depot brigade to take over Company B. Many of those connected officers could not hack the strain of command. The 114th Infantry Regiment and its parent, 29th Division, left for France in May, received training, manned the lines for a time, and by October 10th, Redden and his men were headed into battle. On October 11th, the 114th Infantry received orders from the French 18th Infantry Division that it was to attack the next morning at 0700. The objective was for the 114th to break through the German lines between the Bois d'Ormont and the Bois de Moiret to Ormont's immediate east. To the immediate left, between the 114th and the 113th Infantry, the French 66th Regiment would secure the Bois d'Ormont after the 114th cleared it out. To the right, the French 77th Regiment would be attacking alongside the 114th. Combat operations look and sound and are chaotic from everything I have read about. I would imagine that the one thing a soldier needs to remain, besides eternally alert, is flexible. Ongoing combat operations are highly contingent on recent developments, and because of how quickly everything is happening and changing, information is likely incomplete. When reading about the AEF in World War I, there are frequent scenes where the doughboys charged ahead with poor or no artillery preparation and little to no intelligence on what lay ahead. Knowing that my own level of knowledge on the AEF is itself incomplete, I make myself remember that for the most part, the soldiers and officers were learning on the fly and while under fire, and the Germans were harsh and unforgiving teachers. They would brook no errors. So 
The haphazard nature with which the Doughboys were launched into attacks remains an area in which, again, in my own case, much further study is needed. One thing I believe I can say is that the mistakes the Doughboys paid for with their lives and limbs have served to teach the GIs, the grunts, the ground pounders, the tankers, and everyone else that came after them. In my experiences in a peacetime army, it would be unthinkable to launch an infantry attack like the one Captain Redden was ordered to lead his men into. The 114th moved up from Samagno and on up into the hills to the northeast, to an area between the flattened ruins of Aumont-Pré-Samagno and the Ormont Farm and bois Dormont sectors. Then the companies received their first orders from Captain Redden's memoir, Other Men's Lives. Quote, About 1830 o'clock, the battalion was halted by the roadside and all company officers assembled to receive the battle orders for the attack. The orders given by our battalion commander were verbal, with only a superficial explanation as to the enemy, terrain, supporting troops, dressing stations, ammunition dumps, etc. Particular stress, however, was laid on the necessity of keeping up communication from the companies to battalion headquarters after the battle started. It seemed as though there was more interest in what the division or brigade commanders would have to find fault with, rather than any particular interest in the enemy forces in front of us. There had been no reconnaissance for the companies, although throughout our training, the need for personal reconnaissance had been drilled into us at every school attended, every lecture by our own officers, as well as those from the foreign army officers who had assisted in our training, had emphasized the necessity of this. The only ones who had seen the position were the battalion commanders. In our battalion, we were told that the enemy was holding the line very lightly. How this was known is a mystery to me. The lack of proper reconnaissance by the company commanders who were scheduled to make the attack was a serious error. It left us in the dark as to the enemy position. Also, the fact that the orders were not written gave too much opportunity for misunderstanding and above all prevented the company officers from giving proper thought to the plan of attack. It was a case of poor preparation at some point higher than the company's. A copy of the written order, RO-11, for the attack on the 12th of October, 1918, was procured from the 1st Battalion Sergeant Major on board the ship that brought us home in May, 1919. This order was dated and timed as 8 p.m. on the 11th, about one hour after we had received our verbal orders from the battalion commander. Accordingly, the battalion commanders were also operating under verbal orders at that time. The more this situation is studied, the more it becomes apparent that we were going into this major battle with less real knowledge of what was confronting us than we had in our first trip into the Alsace trenches. The verbal orders received merely gave us the few points absolutely necessary for even a start. We were informed that the attack would take place the next morning, October 12th, then told the map coordinates from which we were to make the jump off. Companies A and B in the front line, making the direct attack, 
Company A on the left, Company B on the right. Each company to have two platoons in line and two platoons in support. Company C to follow Company A in support. Company D, the support for Company B. 2nd Battalion, 114th, to be on the right of the 1st Battalion. 66th French Infantry to attack on the left of the 1st Battalion. 77th French Infantry to attack on the right of the 114th. 3rd Battalion, 114th, the Regimental Reserve. In the attack, the distance between men deployed, 10 yards. Rate of advance, 100 meters in 3 minutes. Attack to be pushed to the limit. Allow nothing to hold up the attack. Disregard liaison to the right and left. If the companies on our flanks are held up or pushed back, continue the advance. Direction of the attack, 15 degrees east of north, from the point of departure to the edge of Bois d'Ormont, where contact would be made with the 113th Infantry, thus pinching out the 66th French Infantry, who are attacking on the left of our battalion. Then, the direction of attack will change for a direct brigade attack on Crepillon by the 113th and 114th Infantry. Zero hour, seven o'clock. Pack carriers and rolls to be left at point of departure under guard. And this paragraph about the artillery which is well worth studying as one of the reasons for so much of our suffering in the following 24 hours. Artillery will prepare for the attack with a 12-hour barrage starting at 19 o'clock tonight and continuing until zero hour in the morning. Last five minutes to be mingled with smoke shells to show that the barrage will lift and to provide a screen for the advance. End quote. October 12th dawned gray and raw. It was likely to rain again, as it did nearly every day of the Meuse-Argonne campaign. Captain Redden found his battalion commander and requested he be shown the ground over which he'd lead his men, and the major complied. Redden asked that he be allowed to avoid the ravine he was supposed to assault through. It would make more sense if his company could march together with Company A along the edge of the woods before shifting right when he reached his objective line. The battalion commander denied the request, stating that the position is lightly held by only a few troops up there who will retire when the advance begins. Redden felt he was being lied to or kept in the dark about what lay ahead. While he laid blame on both his division and the French for keeping information back, he ultimately blamed the French more. It is my opinion that all information concerning the enemy was obtained from the French, and they gave only such information as absolutely necessary, and even that was in a manner tending to minimize the difficulties facing us, he wrote. Redden was left with his orders. He assembled his officers and NCOs, gave them their verbal orders, and Company B, 114th Infantry, was off to the jump-off line about 1,000 meters south of Ormont Farm and Bois d'Ormont. Zero hour came. 
Even the American Battle Monuments Commission's Summary of Operations booklet for the 29th Division states that, quote, from this position, the regiment advanced at 7 a.m. under an ineffective barrage, end quote. From Other Men's Lives, quote, Entering the ravine, we were greeted with a burst of fire from machine guns and rifles that was like the heat from a blast furnace door. About five minutes after the enemy saw us, his artillery came down and we caught everything he threw. As one wag said, they even threw the rolling kitchen, but they took the chow out before throwing it. In order that my readers will understand exactly what we were up against and the very evident lack of intelligent preparation for such an attack as this, let us leave the actual battle for a moment and call your attention to a few things that were very apparent the minute we stepped into that ravine. The distance from the entrance of the ravine to the enemy barbed wire was about 900 or 1,000 meters from where we started the attack. Now, the verbal orders of the battalion commander stated that a 12-hour preparation fire would be laid on the enemy lines, starting at 19 o'clock the previous night, and during the attack would precede us in the nature of standing barrages on the enemy wire and trenches. Our artillery fire during that night was hardly noticeable. About 6.45 on the morning of the battle, there was some slight increase of fire from our supporting artillery, a very thin curtain, having no effect on the enemy position or wire. Friend Fritz must have thought we were afraid of getting the guns dirty. Altogether, the artillery was of no use to us. Without it, we might, by moving rapidly, have surprised him. With it, we had a warning, and Jerry never missed a warning. He was too suspicious. Another point. Our artillery falling on the enemy position at the head of the ravine was lifted and placed on their rear area at the same moment that we entered the ravine, approximately 1,000 meters away. Advancing according to the prescribed schedule, 100 meters in three minutes, it would have taken us approximately one half hour to reach the enemy wire, even if we could have advanced without interference. A barrage, such as we were told we would get on this occasion, is laid on a position preceding and during the early stages of an attack to keep the enemy down and to prevent him from effectually firing on the advancing infantry, also to break down his defenses and to blast openings through his wire for the attacking infantry. Our troops in a well-planned attack would be close enough behind this friendly barrage so that when the artillery fire lifted, the attacking infantry could rush the enemy line before they recovered their firing positions. When properly timed and with cooperation between the artillery and infantry, this type of attack has proven very successful. Whoever prepared the schedule for this attack by the 114th Infantry left Company B about a thousand meters away from the enemy line when the barrage lifted. It allowed the enemy time to complete his breakfast, smoke his pipe, and still be in the firing trenches in ample time to receive us and to mow us down at his own sweet pleasure from the top of a hill. He surely did a most thorough job. The advance continued according to schedule until about 300 yards in, a hill on our right came into our line of advance. I ordered Lieutenant Elms with the 3rd Platoon to take it. 
The platoon advanced up the hill, taking advantage of such cover as was available, the fourth platoon following in support. The second platoon was halted in shell holes in the low ground on the left and assisted the third platoon advance by fire on the enemy position. The platoons, meeting small resistance, swept up the hill and over it with a rush. About 75 yards over the top of the hill, the two attacking platoons halted until the first and second platoons reached the same general line, when the whole company resumed their attack formation and continued the advance. The enemy fire across the top of the captured hill was terrific, mostly from machine guns in the Bois de Moire on our right in front of the 2nd Battalion position. The infantry, German, in our front dropped back as we advanced. The capture of this hill was important, assisting as it did our 2nd Battalion and also bringing part of Company B on nearly a level with the enemy. I accompanied the 3rd Platoon in this attack, allowing the action to be handled by the platoon commander, Lieutenant Elms, until he had gained the top of the hill. The 2nd Battalion was suffering heavily from Bois de Moire and were advancing more slowly than Company B. It was necessary for me to keep close check on the compass direction, as ordered by the battalion commander, so that the company would not get over too far to the right and thus lose contact with Company A on my left, or mask the fire of Company E on the right. By this time, the company was about halfway up the ravine and our casualties were becoming heavy. Still, we were unable to see but very little of the enemy. What we saw were merely a few individual soldiers, usually running from one position to another. The fire was mostly machine guns into our right, with some sniping from high ground in rear of the enemy trenches. This rifle fire was deadly accurate and from positions so well hidden that we were unable to locate them. A number of the best shots in the company had been detailed to watch, especially for enemy snipers and attend to them alone. But the enemy was so well camouflaged, usually in trees, that my snipers on low ground were unable to have much effect on them. Most of the casualties in the ravine were from shrapnel fired by German artillery directly in front of us, evidently located near Bois d'Ormont. You will note from this description that Company B was being cut to pieces by artillery from the front, machine guns from the right, and snipers in front and on the right. The only weapons we had to fight this slaughter with was pistols, rifles, and automatic rifles, show shot, in the hands of my own men. We received absolutely no additional firepower from our supporting artillery, machine guns, 37mm guns, trench mortars, or other auxiliary weapons. Why? Who was responsible? In emphasizing what Company B was going through, remember that another outfit, Company D, following us in support, was getting the same medicine and losing men about as rapidly as we were in that damned ravine. The first platoon was ordered from local support to the left, up the hillside to extend the line which was thinning out from casualties. End quote. Captain Redden sent runners back to the battalion PC with messages on what was happening up the line, but no one was reporting back. Most of his runners got the messages down to command, but were killed or wounded getting back through the ravine. Company A on Redden's left finally broke through the enemy line and came up close to Company B, but neither unit could close the gap between them. The German fire was murderous. 
A machine gun team that came up to help was cut down before getting up to the Company B line. The Germans were chewing everyone and everything up. Quote, By this time, the casualties had become so heavy that every man of Company B was on one thin line and the advance became one of infiltration, each man getting forward from shell hole to shell hole or from bush to tree stump or any other cover available. All attempt to maintain a scheduled advance had passed. Nothing but pure, unadulterated grit kept the men going. It is to the credit of every soldier in Company B that they kept going forward under such punishment until the enemy barbed wire was reached. The non-commissioned officers were being hit hard. In efforts to lead their men into striking distance of the enemy, they were being killed or wounded very fast. After the lieutenants and sergeants became casualties, it was not unusual for some young corporal to find himself in command of his platoon, or what was left of it, and all credit to them, they did a good job in carrying on the attack. Citing acts of bravery among the men of the company, it is a difficult task, and rather than slight even one man, it is better not to mention any special deeds. Lieutenant Chester Elms was wounded in the jaw and shoulder shortly before reaching the enemy wire. Even when directed to the rear by Lieutenant Heinzman, Elms kept on fighting until ordered back the second time. Then gathering up a number of the wounded who were able to walk, he had them assist other men who were unable to get back alone to the dressing stations. Lieutenant Robert L. Mitchell was shot by a sniper and died about a hundred yards in front of the German position. Mitchell was a good officer, leading his men up that ravine, never thinking of himself, always of his men. When shot, he was directly in front of me, cautioning his platoon to take cover, his arm extended, giving a signal to move to the left out of machine gun fire. A sniper got him before he could save himself. The death of Lieutenant Mitchell was regretted by every man in the company. Although it had been our privilege to know him only a few days, he, having joined the company the previous Sunday night, in that short time he had shown himself to be a very capable officer. The fighting over the last 100 meters in the ravine was something those who were in it will never forget, and those who were not in there cannot imagine the conditions. I realized that the only way to save the few survivors left in that hole was to get them up forward a short distance under the protection of a slight bluff directly in front of the enemy wire, which would afford us some cover from direct rifle or machine gun fire, and then hold on. During the morning, we saw the enemy was preparing to counterattack from their position on our right. Immediately, a runner was sent back to the battalion with this information and a request for a barrage to be placed in front of us. A message was received from Heinzman, in command of the survivors of the 3rd and 4th platoons, also reporting the anticipated counterattack. He was making preparations to break it up. Whether this attack would be directed at us or at the 2nd battalion was, for the moment, a question. Company B was the most advanced unit. Company E was slowly fighting its way up. The attack was not launched at us, but at our 2nd Battalion, possibly with the intention of driving Company E back and then sweeping in behind us. Lieutenant Heinzman and his men did mighty good work with their rifles and caused the enemy severe losses during the attack. 
It was one occasion my company had to get in some effective rifle fire on the enemy. The request for a protective barrage in front of our lines was again ignored. This counterattack succeeded in driving back the 2nd Battalion, making matters even worse for Company B, leaving my right flank completely up in the air with no protection. So far as was known, at the time, only Company E had been driven back. Again, the liaison system failed. At no time during the remainder of the day did our battalion or any other source inform me that the troops on my right had dropped back. This was a serious position for us, which the enemy was quick to recognize. He lashed us from the woods on the right with all the firepower he had. Up to this time, we had been losing most of the men down in the ravine, among the first and second platoons. Now we were getting it from the flank into the third and fourth platoons. Troops will stand considerable fire from the front, but when caught in a flanking fire, they generally run. It was a tough spot to hold, nothing to fire back with but rifles. We were unable to charge the enemy position. It was out of my sector in front of a neighboring battalion. To get over there would have meant blanketing their fire. It was simply cold-blooded annihilation, and we were left out there to take it and like it all the rest of the day. While on this point, would it be improper to ask a few questions? First, when the 2nd Battalion fell back, why was Company B not notified so that our right flank could be protected? Second, when the 1st Battalion commander knew that the troops on our right had fallen back, why did he not put in a combat liaison group between Company E and Company B? Third, why were the one-pounders, trench mortars, or machine guns not put on the right flank to at least keep Jerry's machine guns from so effectively using Company B for a target? End quote. Captain Redden blamed his own commanders for being too busy keeping their own hides out of danger than to respond to what was happening. What remained of Company B was now stuck before the unbroken mass of German barbed wire. The American artillery had had no effect. Attempts by the doughboys to cut the wire brought a fury of machine gun fire and artillery shells and more casualties. Redden ordered his troops to keep their heads down. With the coming darkness, they would try to outflank this section of enemy wire or try to locate a break in it somewhere else. A recon of the enemy line just after dark showed that, while covered by machine guns from somewhere, the enemy trench in front of them seemed to be empty. Redden was sure that if they could find a way around or through the wire, he and his men could get going and keep advancing. And then his first sergeant came back to report that the company was assembled for his direction. All 13 of them. Company B had begun the morning with 158 men total, enlisted and officers, and there were a few men not present as they were runners. But this was over 80% casualties in an infantry company that was already down nearly 100 men. Captain Redden wrote of this moment of realization, quote, To explain my feelings at the moment is impossible. I have... Never felt more alone at any time in my life. What happened to me from then on was of no consequence. 
Death or wounds could not have been worse. In fact, death would have been a relief. Picture, if you can, that terrible ravine, full of our own buddies, wounded, dying, and dead. Your boys. All that was left of that fine organization, Company B, was 14 of us. Many long, weary months had been spent in training these men so that when they went into battle, they would at least have an even chance for their lives. Now, all to be seen was death and desolation, and to hear the awful cries of the wounded for whom we could do nothing. All of this was the result of what? A few distasteful words will answer the question. Cowardice, incompetency, and social-political interference, all of which had played its part and was responsible for placing and retaining in command officers who lacked the knowledge, intelligence, and experience necessary to properly command combat troops. All of this flashed across my mind as though stricken with a club. I must have gone mad. Ordering the men to follow me, I started for the rear with some insane idea of finding the responsible officers and showing them the results of their blundering. I was in a good frame of mind to commit murder. Simply went loco. After starting for the rear, I recall nothing until the following morning except the cries of the wounded. Even now, oftentimes in my sleep, those cries are still heard. Shortly after daybreak, I awoke and found myself lying in a dugout with Heinzmann and the survivors of the company nearby. These men have often told me since that coming out of the ravine, I acted like a maniac, raving about this utterly useless waste of life, men partly carrying and dragging me out. Apparently, they were afraid I would do damage to some people or to myself, and to prevent this, remove my trench knife and revolver. When the party reached the point from which we had made the jump-off in the morning, they met Heinzmann on his way back to the lines, alone. He took charge of the men and had me put into a dugout under the care of the medical officer, who kept me doped all night. Every time I woke up, they gave me more sedatives. They tell me that all through the night I raved about the slaughter, and on several occasions tried to leave the dugout and to get to the battalion PC. Redden collected his wits the next morning and went tearing after his battalion commander. Finding him in his dugout, Captain Redden was told that he must go back to the line. Headquarters insists that the position must be held. William Redden, as you no doubt have figured out, was not afraid to speak his mind, especially to a commander who he deemed was hiding behind his orders as well as hiding out in his dugout. Quote, When informed that we would have to go back in again, I just blew up. All the suffering and bitterness in me surely came out as I expressed my opinion. I obeyed your orders yesterday, in opposition to my own judgment. You sent us into the attack and then left us without support, even neglecting to answer the messages sent down to you by runners and walking wounded. You did not know what was in front of us, or if you did, then the information was not given to me. You made no effort to find out how we were progressing, and you made no attempt to see conditions for yourself. 
If any further attack is to be made by Company B, give me another company to fill our ranks and I will make the attack in my own way, but you must keep your hands off. You made a mess of things yesterday and I will take no more orders from you until the regimental commander is acquainted with the conditions. I am going down to the regimental PC. To say it was hot in that dugout would be putting it mildly. There were fireworks in there. The only intelligent thing to be gotten from him was, you must go back and hold the line. The general insists that we hold. I repeat, the battalion commander was afraid of the general and lacked the backbone to protect the troops under his command. Later, as a battalion commander and even as a company commander, there were occasions on which I took exception to orders of Brigadier General Upton, and I always found that if the objections were reasonable or the orders not workable, as in this case, the general would listen and give us cooperation. The major then ordered me not to go to the regimental PC. I insisted that despite his objections, I was going so that the colonel would understand exactly the situation we had been facing. I had no intention of being made the goat in any inquiry that might be made at a later date. Captain Redden did go to the regimental PC, but of course you already knew he would. Redden never forgave what happened that day, and he spent the rest of his life seeking answers. In his research post-war, he found moments of painful truth, like the quote from the German group Order that opened this episode. The recklessly exposed infantry were his doughboys. Company B was given a scouting mission across the battalion's front the next day, October 13th, and the day after that, the now Major Redden was assigned the command of 3rd Battalion, 114th Regiment. But William Redden never forgot his boys from Company B, men like Private First Class Antonio Naccarella, great uncle to a listener of this podcast. Antonio had emigrated to the United States in 1913 to join his brother Luigi, and when he was drafted into the United States Army, he was not yet a citizen of the country he would serve. But serve he did. Private First Class Antonio Naccarella killed in action on October 12, 1918. One amongst many. But we speak his name to remember him. William Redden's book, Other Men's Lives, was dedicated to Naccarella and the others of Company B and their memory. William Redden himself lived until 1944 when his heart gave out as he stood in a world once again tearing itself apart with global war. From Corporal Malcolm Murray, himself a survivor from Company B, 114th Infantry, we have these lines. They lie in the hills and valleys. They rest in the fields of France and up in the Bois d'Ormont where they fell in their last advance. Our eyes are turned to the westward. We wait for the bugle's sound. Their eyes to the heavens above them. They too are homeward bound. Questions, comments, or concerns, please 
don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. You can get at me on Twitter at at WW1podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos. And check out the battles of the First World War Podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care. O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, oh.